Hello everyone. I recorded this little intro after uh, the actual recording of the show because uh, I'm in the process of editing the show for release for tonight and uh, unfortunately I found that uh, half of our top five uh, is actually uh, unusable. You know, the audio files uh, got a bit crappy on me. I'm not too sure what the deal is there. It's very disappointing. Uh, it's actually quite upsetting to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, I've, I've salvaged as much of it as I can but just to just let you know in advance that it's actually not a top five it's actually more like a sort of a top three and a half uh, so yeah and I uh, will actually uh, solo re-record the coming soon section because that section is actually also gone so I do apologize for that so the audio of the uh, coming soon might be slightly different to the audio of the rest of it but yeah, disappointing, but uh, these things happen. The show must go on. So I uh, hope you enjoy what is left of the uh, episode 186. Thanks for listening. episode 186 of NCP. My name is David, and we're the NCP crew. The original flavor crew. Richard. The original flavor. Luke. I don't want anyone knowing what my flavor is. But you're the original flavor. What would your flavor be? I'm not saying. Really? Yes. What would your flavor be? Uh, I don't know. Something caramelish. And Crystal. We've had this conversation. My my flavor is vanilla. Oh, we have had this conversation. Yeah. Well, every episode, someone's first episode. Oh, that is true. So, just in case this is your first episode, yeah. our flavors are caramel, vanilla, abstain, mystery. mystery. And, uh, mystery I'll go, no I'll go cookies and cream. There you go. My flavor is, it's actually two weeks later, people. My flavor is still codrill. <laughs> <laughs> this thing will not go away. I know. What the hell? It's just lingering. Like someone you yeah, it's your fault. It's my fault. <laughs> what can you do? It gave me a sexy voice though, so it's alright. Oh, yeah. Alright. Oh, I don't do it as good as you. But, get out. Uh, for this episode, <laughs> we've got... That's because I got the special flavor, baby. Luke flavor. Yeah. Nobody wants your flavor. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so for this episode, we have two dash jackets. And our uh, top five, and for that top five, we'll be talking about our favourite child performances. Now, I unfortunately have uh, screwed it a bit, <laughs> and so I've got my favourite child performers. But I guess it still works, because they would have at least had one ch- good performance. Otherwise, it wouldn't really work. So yeah, <laughs> we'll work it out. I'm sure <laughs> it'll be it'll be an interesting top five, to say the least. And thanks to E1 Entertainment, we also have a review of Freehold, the movie starring... Julianne Moore and Ellen Page, and uh, that'll be my good self reviewing that film solo. But until then, let's start with the dust jackets. For the two dust jackets, we've got Charles Was End by Arthur C. Clarke, which will be uh, myself and Richard from the sci-fi lists. And our second dust jacket was our staff pick, and this time it's Crystal's pick, who should be doing it with Luke, which is Stalking the Unicorn by Mike Resnick. Isn't that the lead singer of... You're thinking of Trent Reznor. Trent, Trent Reznor, Reznor you mean. Oh, no, if Trent Reznor was stalking Unicorn, it'd be really scary. <laughs> that would be something wrong <laughs> <around> there. <laughs> anyway. There's a great video clip where Trent Reznor chases David Bowie around the streets of New York and he just looks terrifying. Really? Yeah. Is it actually David Bowie? Yeah, it's a David Bowie song. That's it's called I'm Afraid of Americans. And you know what? I'd be afraid of Americans if Trent Reznor was hunting me down. <laughs> I'm afraid of Americans. Very cool. Uh, so let's start off with Dutch Jacket number one, our sci-fi list, uh, which is uh, Richard and myself, Child Tools End, but Arthur C. Clarke. So Childhood's End was written in 1952, published in 1953. Uh, it was originally a short story called Guardian Angel, which Clark then obviously expanded to make the novel. It is number 19 in sci-fi lists top 100. What's directly above it would directly blow up. Directly above it is The Time Machine, which we reviewed in the last Dust Jacket, actually. Yeah. Uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Which we'll be reviewing in... 
Two dust checkers. Two dust checkers from now, yep. Um, As listeners will remember, we're actually trying to work our way at the moment through the top 20. Yeah. You know, we'd been jumping around a little bit on this list, but we thought it was time to just, you know... Buckle down. down. Yeah, exactly right. Buckle down, I like that, yeah. Buckle down and get get down to the business end of things, (laughs) thank you very much. You had a creepy look on your face when you said that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... As I said, the book was published in 1953, um, sold out of its first printing and actually became Clark's first successful novel. Um, and then obviously then launched him into, you know, the superstar legend of science fiction that he's become. One of the today. big three. One of the big three, exactly right. And just on an interesting note before we get to the review itself, um, apparently Stanley Kubrick expressed an interest in actually making this into a film. Yeah. But instead, he and Kubrick decided, no, we'll collaborate on 2001 instead. <laughs> so all things considered, I think they made the right it choice. Like we missed out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. So Childhood's End tells the story of a peaceful and benevolent invasion of Earth by a mysterious group of aliens called the Overlords. Um, and the Overlords is a term that is actually given to this race by the humans themselves. The novel is divided into three parts. The first part of the book deals with um, the early years of the Overlord's arrival. And our focus character here is Ricky Stormgren, who is the UN Secretary General, who becomes the point of contact between Earth and the Overlords, uh, primarily through... An overlord known as Carolyn. Carolyn. Yeah, in the yeah. sci fi ministry, it's like, that's Carolyn. It sounds more yeah. spicy as Carolyn. Carolyn. <laughs> Funnily enough, when I was reading it, I just pronounced it as Carolyn. But, uh, all right, Carolyn, it is. I then. probably did as well, but I read it a long, long time ago. But I've yeah, never read, read yeah. it again after I watched the miniseries. Right, okay. Yeah. So, Carolyn, Overlord Carolyn, is the supervisor on Earth. He's been appointed by who we don't know yeah. um, to basically oversee the. Well, basically, the peaceful subversion of the human race to the overlords' uh, <laughs> needs. Um, basically, he's been supervised to, to stop us killing each other. Yeah, basically. Basically. <laughs> um, one of the big mysteries that is presented in this first section, other than the obvious one, is what is the actual end goal here of these overlords? Why are they doing what they're doing? Why are they attempting to create a utopia on Earth? Um but the other question is is the level of secrecy the overlords have. Um, and that becomes really focused on, well, what do they look like? Because yeah. no one knows. Yeah. Um, not even not even uh, Stormgrim. Not even Stormgrim. In yeah. fact, a part of the this a big part of this, this section of the book actually becomes his decision to find out. Yeah. And what he found finds out amazes him. Now the interesting thing here is you actually don't find out what he finds out in the yeah. first section. Yeah, well, he decides to keep it secret. Exactly. And so, so do exactly. we, as readers, we had secret from us as well. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's quite good. good like yeah. That. The second section of the book um, is called The Golden Age, and this deals with um, the period where basically the overlords have succeeded, they've created their utopia, and we are finally revealed during this this section what the overlords look like now i'm not actually going to spoil that because it's kind of awesome <laughs> um, I, I really really is it a spoiler i think so you think so i think it's, been, it's well, all I'm, over the poster for the video series yeah but i'm thinking for, of people that might want to actually just read the book and not have the mystery revealed and we can talk about the book without that revelation i think okay <laughs> you can spoil it if you want to no that's fine <laughs> that's fine you've made your decision that's cool during um, this section of the book, uh, we're introduced to a character called Rupert Boyce, who is uh, basically a, a pres- runs a preservation, like a game preservation in Africa. Um, he's also a very prolific uh, book collector of esoteric books on um, parapsychology and the unknown, real, real sort of Fortean kind of book collection that he has. Um, which has attracted the attention of the overlords who want to read these sort of things. And they send Rasha Verak, one of their number, to his home to read the books. Um, we're also introduced to Rupert's brother-in-law, uh, Jan Rodericks, who really, he is the main character in this section of the book. 
Um, I'll get back to him in a second, though, because two other characters that were introduced to are George and Jean Gregson. Um, they become more important in part three, but I thought I would bring them up. Um, but Jan is an engineer, and he, more than anything else, though, he wants to get out into space. That's his, like, desire is to get out and see the universe. But one of the things that the overlords have done is actually prevent Earth from getting out into space. It's like, no, you're just not doing it. You can't go beyond the moon. Exactly. Um, During a rather interesting seance that occurs at Rupert's place, because, as I said, he was a collector of esoterica and had his own giant Ouija board set up, strange things start to happen, especially through uh, Gene... And uh, during this seance, after not, you know, basically being completely sceptical and not taking it very seriously, but at the very end, Jan asks a question, and the question is, what is the home star of the Overlords? They get an answer, and Jean faints. So, Jan concocts a plan, and it's quite a, quite a fascinating and complex plan, <laughs> concocts a plan to actually get himself onto one of the Overlords' ships, yeah. And get him to their home world. Yeah, because all the time they've been ferrying, much like you know, Noah's Ark, they've been ferrying examples of human civilization back to their home world on a regular basis, regular scheduled basis. And so, yeah, so he's going to uh, stow away. Yeah. Jan knows that, you know, according to, you know, the rule of special re- relativity, that whilst this trip might only take weeks, and he actually calculates it, he, he calculates in total it might be, I think, four months sort of from Earth to the Overlord's planet and then back again, but that basically 80 years are going to pass and really everyone's going to, everyone he knows is going to be dead by the time he gets back. But he actually accepts that. Um, he doesn't really have anything tying him to Earth. And um, yeah, and he actually, his plan is successful. He hides inside the belly of a whale and uh, off he goes. Now, once again, much like part one, we actually don't find out what he sees. Until part three. Yeah. Which brings us to the third part of the book, which is uh, The Last Generation. This centres around George and Jean Gregson, who we'd seen, obviously, during the seance section in part two. And there is a revelation at that point that Jean may be the most important person on the planet. So in part three, we follow George and Jean and their two children, Jeffrey and Jennifer, Jennifer Ann, as... They move to um, New Athens, New Athens, which is kind of an offshoot. It's a freehold. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, separate, it's separate from the uh, the Overlords uh, from from the World Council, yeah. which now runs the planet. Yeah, um, and it's very very Bohemian, driven by art, and yeah. the the basic desire is that humanity has actually not strived for nor achieved anything of its own since the Overlords arrived. Because you know, when you have a utopia. Everybody has what they need. Nobody wants for anything. Why? Yeah. Why strive for anything? So, so the, this this community seeks to alter that. They want, you know, they they seek out artists and thinkers and um, yeah. artists suffered because to create art you need to suffer. Yeah. Great art is is really suffering. Yeah. There is no suffering anymore. Yeah. Um, and That's very profound. Yeah. <laughs> I am what I am. <laughs> Popeye? <laughs> I is what I is. Oh, go, go, go. <laughs> I was thinking more Descartes, but he will go Popeye, sure. <laughs> I've seen you eat spinach. It's during this section of the book that we actually learn why the Overlords have done what they've done, what their long-term plan is, and most importantly, how it relates to this generation of children that are being born at the end of the Overlord's plan. And without spoiling it, I have to say, what goes on with the children and why this plan was enacted is pretty damn cosmic. Like, it's 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 big-scale philosophy sort of stuff we're talking about here. That sounds very Clark. And yeah, it is very Clark. It's very, yeah... I like that guy's review. <laughs> Sorry, just a, very, just a quick shop shoot. Just, yeah, I read a, read a, just a, a review and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the opening line was is was like you know oh, this is you know very grand and cosmic and scale and all that sort of stuff, um, you know but but that's Asimov for you, 
And so I left a comment. <laughs> this entire review negated by the fact that you're too stupid to know who actually wrote the story. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, nice. <laughs> moving on. Um, and uh, yeah, the book comes to. I've gotten very cantankerous. Okay, you have very cantankerous in my old age. Um, and so, really, the, the Overlord's mission comes to an end. Yeah. Um, and it's then that we actually then, you know, head back and catch up with Yarn. And his experiences on the planet, and then his return to Earth, which is, in many ways, kind of depressing, actually. Really? But also kind of fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I found it kind of hopeful. Yeah, I guess it's a mixed mixed emotional reaction, I think. Yeah. Is, I guess, what what we're coming at from here. So, first things first, I love this book. You can tell the way you're talking about it. Yeah, you can tell that you enjoyed that. Yeah, there's first. First of all, there is a, a just some wonderful big concept ideas, that, and I always love to see that in science fiction. Um, but secondly, like you know, the best of Clark's work, you know, you're seeing social aspects, philosophical aspects, cultural aspects, everything all coming together, and all centered around this big concept of. How would humanity react if aliens arrived and just took over? Right? And I'm glad that, you know, unlike, say, a lot of Hollywood movies and things like that, it's not, oh, you know, we're going to take up arms and kick ass and, he you know, us restore. Peace, kill it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, we've got to restore our freedom and independence. It doesn't matter if they've made the world a better place for everybody. Well, to be fair, there is a little bit of that. There is, but, but I'm, you know, it's not like. The human, yeah. human league. Yeah, there there is the human league, and there's the extremists, and one country tries to launch a nuke at them, and things like that. But the overlords just don't. They don't respond because they don't care because these these humans can do nothing to them. Yeah, and even with the human league, they just they work with them, and they you know work because um, they they're in um, in the first section of the book. Yeah, so they work through Stormgrim with the league. Rather than just trying to oppress the league and everything, they yeah. basically reveal that the league is superfluous, and slowly but surely they die out because of that. Yeah, sounds like the the refined British gen, British gentleman's approach to this, rather than the bombastic. Yeah, well, I mean, to, you know, the overlords, time is on their side. Yeah, so, yeah, they, 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 they will they're immortal. Get their way. Yeah, they're they're, they're pretty much immortal, <laughs> yeah. or certainly long lived. Yeah. Um, I often think that if you compare the uh, British approach to things to the American approach to things, look at their um, TV shows that show an emergency room. Yeah. The British are all quiet and efficient and doing yeah. everything. The Americans are shouting and everything's <laughs> everywhere and got to get things stat. Yeah. 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 What um... Apologies to our uh, American listeners. <laughs> know, you know we love you. Yes. <laughs> One of the things I really love about the way this book is written, he presents a big overriding mystery and a lot of small mysteries along the way as well. And, and as he reveals the answers to smaller mysteries, you get a little bit more of what's going on with the bigger picture, but then that leads to new mysteries and then he follows through on those. And then when it all sort of, sort of culminates in that last generation act three and he just brings it all together really, really nicely. Um, and it just leaves me satisfied, you know. It's like I've been following these mysteries all the way through, the little ones, the big ones. Little by little, you've been giving me more and more. And then finally I get the big revelation and it's like, yep, that's just beautifully structured. Um, and each of the characters, the main characters especially, um, I, I find interesting. Uh, Stormgren in Act 1, Roderick's in Act 2. Probably not... Probably not so much the Gregson family in Act Three, but then you know, but then we come back to Jan Rodericks again anyway. But with with the Gregson story, it's more what's actually going on with the world and the children and the revelation about the Overlord's plan that sort of really keeps that section together. That's that's very encouraging because often at the end of an Arthur C. Clarke book, I've felt unsatisfied. I've been left hmm. wanting. Well, this is yeah. early Clarke, so he hasn't quite reached. I guess that sort of later, less of the hard science writing and things as well. So, well, I have to disagree. Um, actually, <gasps> controversy. <laughs> I I quite like this book. Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say as I love this book. I love what I did love was the concept of the book. I mean, the book is essentially two different 
quite common sci-fi tropes, alien invasion and the evolution of man and the potential of man. And um, I think it marries those two things together very well. I mean, so in terms of the themes and the story, uh, yes, it's, it does work. Uh, I'm very glad Crystal jumped in with what she just said then. It, this, this book does leave me wanting in terms of characterization. Uh, I think that Stormgren um, is great. And mm. uh, and I also think uh, I, should, I should pronounce it Jan, but you pronounce it Yarn. Yeah. I, I pronounce it Yarn. It could yeah. be either. Yeah, it makes it makes sense to be Yarn, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, so I mean, and, and Yarn as well, quite liked as well. Um, mm. But the 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 middle section of the book when they go to the party at Roderick's house mm. is horrendously boring. It's just page after page of sixties style banter and. You know, women hating other women because they're pretty, and men gathering together. It's uh, away from the women folk, and I'm just like, oh my god, it just drags on so much until eventually you get to the sales. Perhaps you should have been having a cocktail at the time. <laughs> yeah, and then they've got you know, the cocktail, and oh. well, that, that, that's what it is. So they are at a cocktail party. Yeah, they're at a cocktail. Party. <laughs> um, is that also? But is that also just you reacting to a sort of a sixties? Well, I mean, it's fifty three. Or so 50s, yeah, or 50s, I mean. Because yeah. uh, uh, you mentioned, you know, the women all sort of picking... Oh, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't hate it because of, you know, the inherent sexism of the, of the 1950s. Uh, no, but, but just you saw more 50s mores in, in that scene I'm talking about. I just thought, I just thought the scene was just out of place yeah. for cool. what was happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, the scene is essentially there to introduce you to Jan, yeah. and, and it serves no other purpose. Cool. Right? So, um, I disagree, because it also... I mean, it also introduced you to the Gregsons, who then become uh, more important? That's good. That's, that's a good point. True. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, it, but but essentially the the entire thing. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. 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 You're right. It, it introduces mm. you to two of the characters that are going to become much more important later on, obviously, mm. um, and the seance. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the the only only other interesting aspect I think of 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 that was the the fact that there's an overlord there reading uh, a library yeah. that of essentially that stuff that's not relevant to science. It's all yeah. Um, which you know, which is part of that stuff. Yeah, which which is part of that little in. part of those little mysteries he's throwing. It's like, well, why are these overlords interested in this? Yeah, yeah. It's really not much of a mystery because as soon as that party scene is over, it's revealed exactly why he's reading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so it seems like that just kind of got to me. Um, and the as as fascinating as uh, Yarn's plan to get onto the ship is, the idea behind it is awesome. Yeah, the lead up to that is again boring. Um, so the actual, I don't need to know the particulars of it. Just get him on the damn ship. Mm. Um, now, I, I, I had an interesting time reading this because I mean I, I read it at school um, and I read it again after watching Sci-Fi's mini series of it. Um, so I had uh, a sort of a, an, an interesting juxtaposition of of how Sci-Fi handled the material versus how the book handles the material. And um, the, the mini series is. Is not very good, um, and not because it's a sci-fi production. It's actually the the, the the production values are actually quite good, but what it does is it 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 creates the story in a, a four and a half hour, well six hours with ads, but a four and a half hour sort of uh, format. And so what it does is it sort of it sort of compresses some characters and and elevates some and that sort of stuff. And so uh, Stormgren disappears completely. Stormgren's replaced by a new character who's a farmer who the overlords choose to be their representative. And instead of just, oh, unlike Stormgren, yeah. So, so Stormgren, so sadly American. <laughs> so, yeah, so Stormgren, um, uh, once he, once he stops becoming the, the, uh, part of the UN, Stormgren actually retires and is replaced. And so then his role as the overlords, mm. um, uh, associate is, is over. Whereas in the miniseries, um, I think his name Ricky or something, or whatever. Something. Yeah, Ricky um, Stormgren. Yeah, say stays with them basically the entire time, and uh, there's a little bit more sort of stuff that happens with that. The other it, and yeah, and sort of various other things that, that the miniseries sort of done differently that I just don't, don't I just don't think really really, really works. Um, one of the things that I that uh, I did like about the miniseries was that it changes the way Yarn gets to onto the ship and then to the to the place and that sort of stuff. And uh, and also gives him a little bit more of an emotional anchor. Like in this, in this, he is actually in a relationship. Um, he's not very good at it, but he's, but he's in a relationship and stuff like that. But anyway, back to the book itself. Right. Um, all, all of all of those changes you've just mentioned, even the one you liked, just make this mini series sound terrible to me. Yeah, it's yeah. It I wouldn't go so far as to say terrible. There's there's a, there's a lot to like. I mean, the Overlords themselves look awesome. 
Um, and of course, it's Charles Dance as Corellan, and so therefore automatically gets at least one star. Um, but it's, it, the rest of it, yeah, it's kind of an interesting. It also interests it. I mean, uh, well, Richard doesn't want to do it, so I won't do it. I won't, we won't spoil the the Overlords, but the there is just a religious religious element to it that the book completely ignores. Um, and so, at first, I was like, "Well, this makes a lot of sense. This this would happen." Um, I'm talking about the miniseries now. Um, but then it just takes it so too far that it's like this character should have been dead two hours ago. I don't understand why this character is still around. So, um, so it's 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 kind of weird. Um, it is. I actually did have a couple of things I wanted to talk about the Overlord, so it, it's a shame. But I, I do agree that it probably is too much of a spoiler, especially um, since the miniseries is quite current. I mean, the book is old, but this miniseries is quite current, so you you don't want to spoil it. Yeah. Mm. We yeah. Well, the first ep, the first it's three it's three parts. The first part of the uh, the miniseries ends with Stormgren's attempt to take a photo and and, and succeeding, and then and deciding to suppress it. Um, and so you don't find out until the second episode exactly what they look like. But yes, yeah, so there was a couple of things I want to talk about that in terms of uh, religion and, and stuff like that. But I won't. So um, I guess I guess I'll just finish off with yeah. I just I think I think this is good. Don't get me wrong, and I think it deserves its place in the top sci-fi list. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's his best work. But that being said, his lesser work is still better than quite a lot of other people's. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I'm glad I'm glad I read it again. I'm glad I got the opportunity to to revisit it. Um, mm-hmm. But I do and I do highly recommend it uh, as uh, as a fan of science fiction. This is a fuller work than some of his other books that are higher praised and even higher on the sci-fi list. In in that, you know, Rama, for example is this huge concept. Yeah. Guys landing on it, exploring it and everything. No real explanation for what it is or anything like that. But that, that actually does, that doesn't matter, right? Because that's not the purpose of the novel. But what, say, this has that that doesn't ha- really have, in my opinion, is strong characters. I think Good what point. we have here is some, some strong characters, as you said, Jan and Stormgren especially. I, I found them both fascinating. And this is why the idea of a farmer <laughs> replacing the Secretary General of the United well, no, States. Well, that, that being said, I actually do prefer the miniseries version of Stormgren. The farmer. Yeah, I actually do. It's just they just they give him a little bit more emotional weight. See, I think Stormgren has already has incredible emotional weight in in this. You know. Yeah. And he's only and you know the idea that he's only got a limited amount of time left to do. What he's doing and what ne- what he thinks needs to be done. I, I found myself really being able to relate to that character. Yeah, and to Yarn's desire to to get out into space and his frustration at you know feeling that the Overlords are holding back. They, yeah, they're but characteristics that's all, but that's I could relate but to. But that's it. That is Yarn's character in a nutshell. Yeah, I'm I a can, scientist. I want to see space. I'm frustrated that I can't. That's it. You don't learn anything re- else about it. Well, no, you do. He's heartbroken over the over you know. His girlfriend a two sentence, him. a two sentence section to say that yeah. he's heartbroken over the loss of a woman, and he's basically finding himself detached from humanity. No, I didn't get that. But here I see this, and in, in some of his um, other early works, like The City in the Stars, as well, there's just some really good character work here that helps sort of ground those big, high concept ideas in a little bit of reality as well. I'll go with that. Um, yeah, and that's one of the things I really love. And about the Overlords this. themselves. And the Overlords themselves. Crowley is awesome. Overlords are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's part of why I don't want to spoil that, spoil that revelation, because it is an awesome part of the book when you actually find out. I'm like, just, that's it cool. Just, it cuts out half of my stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I don't think it's fair. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, final rating? Three. All right. I'm going to give this four. Good stuff. Check would, it out. What would you rate the miniseries? One and a half. Okay. <laughs> oh, God, they changed Yarn's Mainly name. Mainly the Charles Dance. <laughs> they changed Yarn's name to Milo. <laughs> Milo Rodericks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not very good. Also, the way the kids ascend in the miniseries is just freaking awful. <laughs> Like in the book, I mean, there's actually those, you know, ramps come down and they, they, they yeah. move to, you can only assume it's Australia. I think it's actually Australia where they go to. I yeah, it doesn't really, know. doesn't really say. Yeah, it, but. It's just um, an island. It's just, it's an island. Yeah. It has to be an island, an island big enough for all the children of the world. So yeah. that's yeah, say, was, it has to be pretty big. There um, was 30 million of them or something? And they hint to that, they hint to that in the miniseries because the kids 
They just floats <laughs> off into the sky. <laughs> I'm like, come on! And then they, yeah, then later on you see Jennifer doing the energy thing that she's doing. Yeah. And she's clearly on Air's Rock. Oh, okay. And I was like, yay! Australia's home! That was pretty good. Okay, so that's uh, that was uh, Charles's end. Uh, let's move on to Dust Jacket number two, which is Crystal's Choice, Stalking the Unicorn by Mike Resnick. This book, uh, I was trying to remember when I first read it. Unfortunately, this, I bought this book back at the time where I was writing my name in the front and putting the date when I bought it. Cool. So I actually read it in September of 94, so more than 20 years ago. <laughs> It was just wow. amusing to me because David kept saying, you've read it. So I said, I need to worry about it. <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> um, I found it at an op shop, uh, attracted to it by the cover. You know, I was reading a lot of Douglas Adams and kind of odd sort of stories like that. And, and this book kind of fell into that category. And I took it home and, and read it and really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's basically a sort of noir detective story, but with a lot of weird stuff thrown in as the title suggests he's stalking mm. a unicorn so you've got uh, your detective john justin mallory your downtrodden whiskey drinking detective basically every single cliche yeah. <laughs> you can throw at a private detective he uh, gets thrown yeah, at yeah here. yeah it, it, it's 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 sort of a he's a caricature of that sort of mm. genre awesome. um he's he's uh just lost his wife to his partner they've mm-hmm. traveled off together taken all his money and and he's, uh, it's New Year's Eve. He's deep into a bottle of whiskey and uh, an elf appears, which he thinks is due to the whiskey. Uh, the elf wants to hire him because he's lost this unicorn that he's supposed to be guarding. And if he doesn't have it at the end of the, in the morning, the elf guild will kill him for neglecting his duties. Wow, harsh. Yeah. <laughs> So it turns out the elf is from the other Manhattan. Ooh. So it's it's kind of a bit sort of neverwhere-ish. If you, if you sort of maybe look at the right angle or something, there's a membrane between these two Manhattans, one of which is full of not magical, they point out, mm. beings, but it's, it's so close to magic, it might as well be magic. And the other one is our regular mm. Manhattan. So uh, we have... John Justin Mallory, who is uh, finding his way, through, like, slowly becoming sober and getting to grips with this new Manhattan, and also uh, trying to find this unicorn, attracted by the large sums of money that mm. the elf Morgenstorm, or Morgenstorm yeah. <laughs> has uh, dangled in front of him. Um, so that's about as far as I'll, I'll go with the plot. It, that, that, that's basically... In a nutshell, it's it's quite it's quite funny. Um, as I say, I remember loving the book when I read it the first time around back when I was twenty one. <laughs> um, I didn't it didn't really grip me as much this time around, and it could be because I've been ill over the past couple of weeks. Um, I, I didn't really get a chance to to finish it, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it wasn't really holding my attention as well as it did the first time around. Uh, maybe it's because I'm older. I don't know. But this is the book that introduced me to Mike Resnick. Uh, Mike Resnick's a fantastic author. Um, but most of his other stuff I read is a bit more serious. Mm. Uh, it's science fiction stuff and, and generally set in Africa or thereabouts. Mm. So um, Does he live in Africa, Resnick? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he does. Right. I, I don't know. But it seems to be one of his favourite sort of... Yeah, um, so this book seems to, a while I started reading Mike Resnick, expecting the rest of his stuff to be similar, it seems to be more of an anomaly in, in his, his works. Right. There, it is the start of a series, there are other books after this. Um, they continue the same characters? I think so, I've not read them. Ah, oh, okay. That was actually one of the things yeah. that, um, I, I, when I got in, I got, okay, so are there actually more books featuring... John Justin Mallory and you know Winifred Carruthers because that 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 actually yeah. did seem to be where the book finished with yeah. the um, the setup for more books to come. Yeah, there there are at least two other stalking mm. books, and I assume that, that oh yeah, stalking that, the dragon. Yes, I assume I assume yeah. that um, Mallory and Carruthers are, are in there. But I neglected to mention um, about halfway through the book, John meets Colonel Carruthers, who was an expert on 
unicorns, like she's a big game hunter but uh, in the in the other Manhattan universe. Gotcha. Um, and uh, they end up working together, uh, forming like a, a detective team to try and track down this, this unicorn. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the hard... I've never read Mike Resnick before. Um, but I am a big fan of the hard-boiled genre. I t- I'd known about the existence of this book, but had never read it. Mm. Um, but so, but coming into this, knowing full well what the you know the vernacular is, what the language is, you know how the the flow of stories, the punch of, uh, you know the punch of the wit and the dialogue. So yeah. immediately I was going, okay, so there's a few things here that I can connect with, and. I do agree with you about Mallory being a bit of a caricature at the start. In fact, I kind of wanted a little bit less of... The, instead of throwing every single cliche at me, mm. um, to sort of scale that back a little bit and give me a little bit more of his humanity, I guess, as a character. Um, but throughout the, course of the sto- throughout the course of the book, I actually did actually connect when it's actually revealed that in spite of his flaws as a human being, he's in fact a very good detective yeah. um, and a very clever one as well. Um, so I actually did. I did like John J. Mallory by the end. What I would have liked um, more is his is that sort of that Raymond Chandler Marlowe-esque sense of observation of the world, yeah. which is a bit redolent in a hard-boiled fiction. More because um, he makes a change. He, he reacts quite favorably to the world that he finds himself in. Yeah. But that, that only gets revealed through dialogue. Yeah. And I would have liked a little bit more about you know the the immediate observations between in the differences between his world with its um you know seeming normality but a justice system that is actually quite complex that allows criminals to go free yeah. and this you've got to remember this is set this is set in New York in 1987 and then you know the even the the strangeness yet the quite charming simplicity of the new world he finds himself in yeah. Um, which I had no pro- I don't have no problem with him making that connection. I yeah. it, it was it's obvious it was obvious where the novel was actually going to end quite yeah. early on, or was going to happen. Um, but I would have liked more of more of his personal observations as to that, rather than it sort of being told through dialogue. Yeah. Um, at times, I felt that the book was not not structured. It, I felt that he was sort of writing this. That is structuring the plot as he was writing it. Yeah, I got a bit of that sense as well. Um, there's a lot of in that you mentioned. You mentioned Neverwhere, which does get written after this, but I actually thought of Neverwhere as well. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of you know encountering strangeness at the start rather than yeah. getting into the detective story. Yeah, so it felt a bit like uh, strangeness for strangeness' sake. Yeah, like, for instance, when he meets the um, the runner, the English runner who yes. has been running the marathon for um, forty years yeah. or thirty years at that point. Um, which is which is funny. I'm not saying yeah. it's not, um, but I did wonder what it was doing there yeah. in the story. Like, how was it contributing? It wasn't telling me anything new about this, anything new or strange about this world that I hadn't already known. Yeah. And it wasn't giving me a part, a piece of the plot that I found was leading me into the next. Yeah, no, I think so, it was just whimsy for whimsy's sake. And I've got no problem with whimsy for whimsy's yeah. sake, but <laughs> when you've already had quite a lot of it by that stage, yeah. like the the chess match between the detective and the criminal, yeah. who have decided that, you know, the only way that they can now settle their differences and, you know, actually get the most out of life is instead of doing the, the, the toing and throwing and the, yeah. the game of cat and mouse throughout New York is to sit down and actually have a chess match that's been raging for, again, for about 20 years. Yeah. Um, uh, it would have liked a little bit less of that and actually to get more into um, sorry. Also, a little more development with his relationship with, say, Winifred Carruthers. Yeah. Given that a lot of what his actions at the end um, revolve around his his attempts to actually help or rescue her, um, she comes quite late in the story, and their their friendship isn't developed enough for me to quite get his quite get his connection. Yeah, I'm wondering if she came quite late in the story because, as you say, it seemed to be sort of mm. coming as he went along. Mm. Um, I, I did find it interesting how dated it seemed to be now. When I first read it, it was not long after it was actually written. Mm. But uh, reading it now, it's, it's, uh, you don't think the world's changed all that much mm. until you read something written back then. <laughs> One of the funny things I thought was that the subway trolls who live on subway tokens, and I thought, well, they're going to starve now because <laughs> they just have these little little, little paper cards that they use. <laughs> um, but see, for me, see, I didn't find that quite so because of the vernacular. Because I'm so familiar with 
the style and the sensibilities. Yeah. I actually didn't find there wasn't a lot of, I guess, anachronisms. Oh, no, I don't mean it that way. I just mean it that it really felt like uh, the world in the 80s compared to now and, and, and it really sort of bring home how the world has changed quite a lot like socially and um, not just technologically but socially and yeah. attitudes and things. Mm. Um, Another thing that I really would have liked more of um, is more of, and this gets back to the story, is more of a, a, a proper development of the antagonism between Mallory and the villain of the piece, who's called the Grundy. The Grundy, yeah. And without giving away what the Grundy's up to. I mean, the Grundy, to me, came across as a hard-boiled detective going up against the devil. Yeah. Um, and there's much in their conversations made about, you know, ultimate good going up against ultimate evil, and ultimate evil needing, because he's... The Grundy is the all-powerful being in this universe. Yeah. Um, the ultimate evil needing ultimate good to sort of define him, and mm. it being, which is quite a fascinating conversation, and they have two. Mm. Um, but the, again, they come they come really late in the piece, and I would have liked more of that because I, I quite like okay. I've always liked you know the interplay between good and evil um, in these types of stories and the philosophical. Um, conundrums that the Grundy finds himself in in relation to needing to find yeah. a worthy opponent and actually being quite excited by Mallory because Mallory yeah. actually is and Mallory presents himself as being quite clever in the end he's oh. a bit like uh, Moriarty as to Sherlock as mm. the Grundy is to Mallory mm. yeah. there is a bit of that at the start um, where uh, when the Grundy kind of first becomes aware of Mallory and tries to stop him in the um, in the in the museum yeah, mm. but then there's a long there's long gaps I yeah. guess um, between that, mm. and it, again it actually takes a while for the actual mystery itself to set in. It's actually a it's a, it's a standard bug hunt almost. Yeah, going off and chasing something, and then realizing there's a mystery tied yeah. to what's going on. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I actually did um, for the most. Whilst I don't think it's a, a classic, um, I did actually enjoy what it, while whilst I was reading it. It yeah. took me a couple of goes. To really get into it, instead of wanting to do the the full sit through it, I had to stop at certain points because yeah. early on, because of you know a little bit too much whimsy as opposed to yeah. a bit more story. Um, but I did actually enjoy this in the end. Yeah, yeah. I, I, as I say, I enjoyed it very much first time around. Um, second time around, uh, uh, not as much. But I think it, it's probably because. I hadn't been feeling well. Uh, lots of things got in the way of me trying to get time to read it, so I, I felt a bit rushed trying to read it. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's, it's not one of Mike Resnick's best works, but it is my introduction to him. It's a strange introduction, as I say, because it's just sort of so different to everything else he's mm. ever written. <laughs> so, um, uh, final thoughts? Um, a little pastiche in places, um, as in, you know, quite clearly drawing on other influences and yeah. it takes a while to overcome that yeah. but um, a sat a, a certainly a satisfying reading experience yeah. all up so I, I would give this three looks okay yeah I, I agree with that but I think it's, 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 it's quite deliberate uh, and, and Eddie's Eddie's embraced the, the, the genre and, mm. and doesn't mind drawing on other influences because of that um, like I say, it's, 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 it is a bit of a caricature. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd also give it three looks. Cool. Hey, I, I think that's the first high look that I've ever agreed on a book. Yeah, three looks is pretty high. No, we, pretty we, high we, praise. We kind of agreed on the Martian. Yeah, that's in that, you know, it, we, there were differences in in perhaps how much we enjoyed it, but we didn't. Neither of us hated the Martian. That's true. Uh, that was awesome. Um, I actually now want to read uh, Stalk in the yeah, Equal, which yeah. I will be doing. Sounds pretty cool, uh, actually. Uh, it actually does sound pretty cool. Yep. Uh, so our next book's the next sci-fi book, Richard? Yep. Uh, our next book uh, from the sci-fi list is The Forever War by Joe Holderman. Really been hanging out to review this one for about two and a half years now. <laughs> so looking forward to it. Uh, my, the next staff pick is myself, and I'm going to be reviewing Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, by Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Cranor, which was actually my Christmas present from young Luke. Um, and actually, I haven't even read it yet, mm. so really looking forward to it. It is a forbidden book, but it's well <laughs> worth the reading. So uh, You'll know what I mean. If, you, if you're not familiar with Welcome to Night Vale, you'll know what that means. <laughs> well, I'm not familiar with Welcome to Night Vale, so I won't know what that means, but I will after I read it. Uh, so who's doing what with who? Well, I actually started reading Forever War, and I didn't like it. 
Well, read Night Vale then. <laughs> Which you'll probably, you'll probably hate. Actually, no, you might enjoy bits of it, to be perfectly honest. I've read both, so I... Okay, so... I, 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 can, I can actually contribute to both. Yeah, Crystal and myself. It'll be more like a round, because I've actually read for overall as well, so it'll be like one big massive dust jacket. But no, so Crystal and myself doing uh, Welcome to Night Vale, and Rich and Luke doing mm. The Forever War. So let's uh, move on to our top five, our top five child performances... Slash performers. <laughs> Since I stuffed it up. <laughs> so uh, we'll do. Uh, we'll work our way around. So we'll, we'll start start at five. I quite like this working around thing that mm. we've introduced fairly recently. Yeah. So we'll start at five, and and we'll everybody do their fives, and everybody do their fours, and everybody do yeah. their threes, and everybody do their twos, and one. Mm. Get the yeah. drift. Yep. I don't know why I had to go through the entire thing. We're all smart people. Yeah. <laughs> right, so it's, uh, it's always somebody's first episode. That's true. That is that is true. Um, yeah, so we'll start at five, and we'll start with uh, Richard, and we'll do anti-clockwise. Right. Okay. Well, uh, my number five, I must admit, is a bit of a cheat because it's not one actor in particular. It is the cast of Stand by Me. Right. That movie is brilliant, and ab- one of just like those defining movies of anybody that's my age, and the p- performance by the main kids in it—they're uh, all outstanding. I think. Um, even even O'Donnell, yeah, even even he's good. Just, look, they could act when they were kids. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's, it's O'Connell. Oh, O'Connell. Yeah. I don't know. Who cares? Look, I mean, maybe you know might, who I was talking about. Maybe if you wanted to isolate one of them, River Phoenix, maybe hmm. he was good. You know, um, but this is also Will Wheaton in there. Yep. Yeah, even Chocolate Willie Wheaton is good. You know, um, God, I hate that guy. But it's it's a film that relies on it. It's, it's a film that relies. <laughs> substantially on the performances of all of its child actors. Yeah. And they all hold their own yeah. and they all pull off the roles that they're meant to be pulling off really well. And that's, you know, that helps make this film an absolute classic. Gotcha. And so my number five is the cast of Stand By Me. So we should say that they're, they're, they're Jerry O'Connell, River Phoenix, Will Wheaton and Corey Feldman. Yeah. Yeah. Crystal. Um, my number five pick is Gary Coleman. Specifically in different strokes. Right. I loved that show when I was a kid. And uh, Gary Colbert, for the age he was when he started, I think he was just a, a terrific little actor. And when, whenever Arnold got upset, you, you felt upset for Arnold. Like when you saw that little boy cry, you just oh, you just wanted to pick him up and squeeze his cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Touching. Yeah. And condescending. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was sweet. He yeah, was sweet. Uh, so my number five is Mickey Rooney. Uh, he was is an absolute genius in his day and, and the big the, the biggest Hollywood star of his time. From nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty. Yeah. Wow, spanning two, <laughs> two decades. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping somebody would do it. I couldn't remember the exact words. I'm like, surely one of these guys will do it. One of um, the very first teen heartthrobs. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was awesome. And you know, and, and I would I wouldn't say he was. He obviously, he wasn't the first, but he I mean, he paved the way for Hollywood child stars. Mm. Uh, so that's why. Look, um, I'm going with Noah Segan from Looper. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, good choice. You know. Kind of looks like Damien from The Omen, but is that does actually a really good job, right. and to actually get some of the emotional core that you would need for that character, yeah. um, does a pretty good job, I think. Cool. He plays the same character in the um, in Extant, but is more interesting. Mm. Anything's more interesting than Extant. That is true. Moving on, <laughs> Richard, number four. Uh, yeah, my number four goes to the completely ignored. And little-known performance by Christian Bale in Empire of the Sun. How can it's ignored? Yeah, the I film was... I was looking at it. He was, he's in the top ten. Uh, well, good. He should be. But, um, no, the, the film wasn't a success when it was released. It's and, terrible. Uh, it's a great film. Awful. It is a brilliant film and <laughs> like his performance... a sci-fi production. What? <laughs> a sci-fi <laughs> production. Um, yeah, Christian Bale is, I think, 12 when this film was made. Yes, yeah, it was. And in this film, he holds his own... And in fact, in, in many respects, outdoes just a whole range of classic actors. And really, even at the age of 12, he shows you just how damn good an actor he is. You know, and you can see why, you know, he's got all the accolades today because he was being able to do this at such a young age. Just awesome. I agree. Crystal? 
Uh, my number four is also Mickey Rooney, but specifically in the Boys Town film with Spencer Tracy. Nice. Made in 1938. Um, uh, we, you, awesome. We've seen, we saw Mickey Rooney uh, in those teen films with Judy Garland, like Mickey and Friends. But the, in the Boys Town film, you can see uh, the serious side of his acting and his acting chops, and you can see why he had such a long career ahead of him. Two of us had Mickey Rooney. Yeah. Brilliant. And the, uh, fact, the fact that he holds up with, with you know, <laughs> no less an actor than Spencer Tracy as well. That's yeah. brilliant. Uh, my number four is Billy Thomas, who played Buckwheat in the Algan series of films. Um, <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> so if you, when you say Buckwheat, I don't think of him specifically. I think of Eddie Murphy in Saturday Night Live. Yeah, well, <laughs> Eddie Murphy you know, destroyed the legacy. Of, ah, the Eddie Murphy stuff's pretty funny. Uh, but no, Billy, Billy Thomas is... Um, I, I, don't, I just don't think he gets... Um, oh, he's, he's unfortunately passed on now, but he just he doesn't get enough chops that the recognition that he deserved. I mean, uh, he was buckwheat. I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, from the looks of it, it's you know, it's the it's the it's the you know the stereotypical and let's face it, racist picking any sort of you know character and sort of stuff. But I think Billy Thomas had such an amazing range, especially considering he started at eight years old. But those films, I mean, yes, most of it's comedy. But also goes into drama, and and uh, you know various sort of emotional aspects that he has to cover in those entire films. And he dominates every scene he's in. I mean, there's the the Al Game films, you know, take it or leave it. But I mean, everybody, and everybody shines. Mm. And uh, and he is out of out of, a, out of a galaxy of stars. He's the one that shines the brightest. Luke, um, Haley Joel Osment in the Sixth Sense. Cool. Um, yeah, this was at the time, you know, the other the other big child actor was Jake Lloyd for the Phantom Menace, <laughs> and everyone went, "Thank goodness for Haley Joel." Um, Oops! Oh, somebody kill this kid. Sorry. That, so yeah, uh, <laughs> not much really I can say because a lot of been, a lot has been said about that performance, and unfortunately, he's not really ever capitalised. Yeah. On that, the way that you know, quite a lot of child actors actually do, like Christian Bale and a couple of the others who will probably no doubt crop up on people's lists yeah um but you know for it's those two hours he actually does a really good job yep uh number three richard okay um my number three is kirsten dunst specifically for interview with the vampire ah claudia because because <laughs> honestly like interview with the vampire it's a good film i enjoyed it and everything and it goes along quite nicely and then her character appears and you're like oh my god this is awesome yeah and for the 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 best section, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Nick. yeah, the best <laughs> section of the film is the the section featuring her character and everything yeah. that leads up to her death, and, and and to me that is the absolute pinnacle of that movie, and her performance is the absolute standout in that. Film. And now for the review. I guess it's uh, it's pretty silly to say just review because we've already we've already had two book reviews, so this is also a review. It just happens to be a film review. So and now on to the film review. Now at first glance, Freehard uh, would not really be the sort of typical film that we'd review on the show. It's uh, it's a it's a biography drama slash romance, and uh, you know we usually do you know science fiction and fantasy and action adventure and all that sort of stuff. New culture is meant to be at its core an, in- an inclusive culture. I mean, it's all about uh, people of different, you know, various types getting together to do the things that they love. So it doesn't matter if we're, you know, man, woman, gay, straight, color of your skin. If you love nerdy related stuff, then you are part of the nerd culture and the nerd family. So when I was uh, asked to take a look at this film, uh, I jumped at the chance. It was it stars. Uh, uh, Julianne Moore, as, as I said in the, the intro uh, about an hour ago, and uh, and I've always been a fan of Julianne Moore. I think she's awesome, and uh, it also has uh, Steve Carell in it as well. Which, and uh, as people know, I'm a despite uh, Crystal's dislike, I'm a fan of Steve Carell. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so it is it is a uh, biography drama romance. It does deal with uh, it is a deal with uh, with actual you know real life events. Uh, New Jersey police lieutenant Laurel Hester has to fight. For her uh, domestic partner Stacy Andre, who is also a woman, played as played by Alan Page, 
to allow her to receive her pension benefits after she is diagnosed with terminal cancer. She is a police officer, and she uh, goes out of her way to protect her privacy. And it, she, I mean, she's a she's a woman in a, in a man's world, trying to, to do the best she can. And she's very good at what she does. She's she's an excellent cop. The first I mean, the first part of the film essentially deals with her life leading up to the events of, uh, before she actually even meets Stacey, and and. Um, and it's shown just how how good she is at her job and how much she loves her job and and uh, how important she is to the community. But she does feel that she needs to keep her private life private, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, I guess I guess the only thing that's sort of wrong with that is the feel the fact that she feels pressured that she has to. I mean, she of course she shouldn't. I mean, she should be you know proud of who she is and she shouldn't have to have to keep that a secret. But she feels that she does. The, then, then, of course, she meets Stacy, and uh, they begin a relationship, uh, which she, again, of course, uh, keeps secret. But then uh, she has to stop being this, this private person when it's revealed that... Uh, so this is uh, ten-odd years before uh, gay marriage become uh, even marginally legalised or, or allowed. And so she, uh, when she finds out that her partner has no legal standing... Uh, as being in a relationship with her, that she has to fight for what she wants to happen. It's it's competently made this film. It's I mean it's it's not as good as I, I was hoping it would, it would be. It is I mean it is it it, it ticks all the boxes. I mean I, but I think uh, what sort of lets it down is that it it sort of sticks a little too much to the facts and doesn't really let uh, the drama uh, sort of have any life. It doesn't really it doesn't really breathe into any life to it. I mean it, it very much. Um, sticks to the sticks to the points of the story, and you know to to that end, I guess that's fine. I mean, it's it's just that this is not a documentary. This is uh, meant to be a dramatization of, of the facts, and there's really not that much. I mean, of course, there is a little bit. It's it's not as much as you would sort of expect there to be. It's 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 very sort of by the numbers. Um, but that being said, I mean, when you've got actors of the quality of Julianne Moore, Michael Shannon. Uh, Alan Page. I'm not a big fan of Alan Page herself, uh, to be honest with you. I'm actually, I actually quite dislike the, the lady, but but you can't. Nobody can deny her acting ability. So, you know, Julianne Moore, Alan Page, Michael Shannon, Steve Carell, and you've, you've got actors of this quality. Uh, even uh, such, uh, even when the film itself doesn't quite allow them to breathe, they're they're going to you know step beyond what they're what they've been restricted to and uh, bring some life. Uh, that that uh, Steve Corral, of course, uh, steals the show uh, as um, as lawyer Stephen Goldstein, and there has been a bit of criticism leveled at, at, at Steve because of his betrayal. It is, but I mean, it, it does need to be pointed out that he was coached by the real Stephen Goldstein <laughs> in that role, and he's perfectly fine with it. So yeah, there was there was no ill will <laughs> to you know be there, but. Uh, Julianne Moore is definitely, as to be expected, the standout. I've always been a big fan of Michael Shannon. Uh, I just don't think this film gives him the chance to do what he needs to do. You know what I mean? I mean he's, he is a better actor than you would actually see, than you, than you see from here. Um, uh, it also has uh, William Sadler in there at, uh, at one point. Uh, but yeah, uh, Julianne Moore, the, the standout. I mean, she is she is absolutely brilliant, and uh, I think this is yet yet another example of just. Just how good she is. I mean, I mean, I'll watch anything she's in, just because she's awesome. That, I mean, all, all that being said, I, I do highly recommend it. it is It is. Uh, it's 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 very. It's it's an interesting story. Uh, it's you know. It's especially. It's it is. It's a heart wrenching at, at at moments. I mean, it's this is just you know these are, these is two people who are in love and want to be able to uh, share and express that love and for you know various reasons, various social reasons, feel that they can't. Until they actually have to, you know, stop stop being so private and be so publicly out there in order to fight for what they want, and nobody should have to do that. I mean, people should love who they who they want to love. I mean, any any you know institution that says that you know two people can't love each other is just wrong, in my opinion. Love, you know, it's I wouldn't say love is all you need. I'm not saying John was completely right, but it's it's. I mean, love is, uh, is is a powerful and wonderful thing, and uh, when two people want to be able to express that, uh, social norms should not get in the way. So screw those guys. Um, yeah, check it out. That's Freeheld 
uh, being distributed in Australia through E1 Entertainment. Uh, it is available on uh, DVD uh, and Blu-ray in Australia as of uh, the 16th of March. So uh, check it out. Alright, my solo coming soon. Uh, coming soon to Australian cinemas, March 17, we have London Has Fallen. Uh, the follow-up to Olympus Has Fallen with Jared Butler. Uh, the sequel that had to happen, and I'll be honest with you, it looks pretty bad. I don't know. Might be one of those guilty pleasures, but who knows. Uh, Miracles from Heaven, some uh, Christian propaganda. Young girl finds, her house, finds herself miraculously cured of a rare digestive disease after surviving a terrible accident. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Daughter. Jeffrey Rush, Sam Neill, Owen Leslie, Odessa Young, Miranda Otto, and Paul Schneider. And this family feud drama. Uh, I've heard the good things. I want to see it. Uh, Zootopia. Uh, your typical Disney animals that speak. <laughs> and uh, you know, so it's basically it, it posits that you know animals have evolved to to sort of you know humanoid forms and live lives just like ourselves and I don't know various stuff like that. That's that's what you get in these animated films. Uh, last but definitely not least though is The Witch, which is uh, winner of the directing award at Sundance 2015. And uh, wow, I want to see this. It's about a family that. Uh, uh, in you know around those sort of you know Salem witch trials type times, family who uh, starts a new life in a cabin in a forest, and uh, some strange things start to happen, and uh, the very religious father starts to doubt his own family. So yeah, sounds pretty cool. Sounds very uh, very suspenseful. Well, that's it for coming soon. Uh, now as. Uh, yeah, as I indicated at the start, this is not only a solo coming soon, re-recorded, but uh, it also means that uh, all the outros are all gone. So, uh, as, as I'm sure you'll know, they were all hilarious, uh, but uh, unfortunately they, uh, they are gone. So, it's just goodbye from me, and uh, a proxy goodbye from, from the rest of the crew. So, uh, Crystal, bye! Richo, yeah, I'm hilarious! And Luke, the world's harshest critic. That's it for episode 186. Hope you enjoyed it. See you later. Bye. You've been listening to NCP. Thank you for being a part of our crew. If you would like to support the show, you can use the Amazon widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. If you have any feedback, please go to nerdculturepodcast.com forward slash contact us where you will find a list of the many different ways you can interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.